This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, one of the most interesting, well-traveled Hasidic Jews on the planet Earth. Shlomo Zions has been to dozens of countries, including some of the most surprising for any kind of Jew whatsoever, much less a visibly and proudly Hasidic one such as himself. He is a columnist in Ami magazine where he chronicles his extensive travels and he was also recently featured in a viral video series by famous travel vlogger Peter Santinelli, where Shlaimi welcomed him into the inner sanctums of the Hasidic community in New York, and millions of people have learned about Judaism and that unique community through these videos, which only aired recently. Meanwhile, a reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know. Spell that fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Please let others know to do so as well. Email comments, questions, or sponsorship requests to JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now, our conversation with columnist, world traveler, and travel journalist, Shlaimi Zayats. We are here with Shlaimi Zayats, the itinerant journalist, the traveling journalist for Ami Magazine been all over the world and has an incredible number of stories, most recently uh, perhaps made famous on YouTube by his starring role in a expose series uh, highlighting the inside life in a Hasidic community with the uh, travel vlogger Peter Santinelli, but we'll get to all that later. Shlaimi, how you doing? Good, thank God. How are you? Doing amazing. And uh, I've read, you know, many of your stories for years and Maybe someone who's uh, lived vicariously <laughs> through some of your adventures always think, wow, that would be pretty cool to do. Um, and then I saw you in this recent video series and I said, I got to reach out. So tell us a little bit about where you're from. We've got those who obviously are just listening audio. You can't see Shlaimi's long, Payas's long uh, sideburns in the Hasidic uh, look. So it seems that uh, you came from a Hasidic background, but tell us a little bit about that early upbringing. Sure. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we lived there in Borough Park until I was almost three years old. And then we moved to Toronto, Canada, where I grew up. I went to Bubba Cheder for elementary school. And, and then I went to a couple of yeshivas. I ended up going to Lakewood to learn when I was 16 and then went to Israel when I was 18. Married at 21 in New York. And uh, we currently pretty much live in Israel, but we're locked out because of COVID. So we've been drifting around since September and we'll see what happens after Pesach. Wow. So now you say you grew up, uh, you were born in, in Brooklyn, in Borough Park, which is a very Hasidic neighborhood for those uh, unfamiliar. We actually recently had a Borough Park guest uh, named Mendy Reiner, who's the founder of Renewal, uh, the kidney uh, organization, kidney donation organization. So we learned a little bit about Borough Park from him. But uh, then you moved to Toronto. So why did your family move? So I think it was because my father got a really good job in Toronto. We actually, he grew up there and he had lived there all his life. So it wasn't like completely foreign where he, he was moving to where he had grown up. So he had family, you had family there and things like that? Yeah, and we, we obviously still do. 
I don't really think of Toronto as a Hasidic enclave. Um, is that mistaken? Is, is there a lot of Hasidic Jews there? There aren't a lot, but there definitely are some. There are a few hundred Hasidic Jews. There's a uh, big Babov community. There's a lot of Lubavitch community. There's a little bit of a Breslov community, a drop of Ger. So there's, uh, there's definitely a couple hundred people who consider themselves Hasidic. And now, so for, for our uh, many listeners who might not be familiar with the intricacies and the uh, minutia and the distinctions between various Hasidic sects, maybe give us a, a window into what, is, what does it mean to be a Babov Hasid? What's different than you know, the other types that you just mentioned? And how did your, kind of, how did your family get involved in that particular subset? Sure. So there are approximately and probably even more than 200 different sects in the Hasidic world. Um, a lot of these sects, the names come from different towns or regions in Poland or Ukraine or in Russia or wherever. And um, I think from if you look, if you want the, the real truth about what the difference between all these groups are, is most of them are based on teachings of different rabbis who were all students of the Balshemtov or students of students of the Balshemtov. So it's just basically different sects of people who are going about being Hasidish in different ways, um, trying to serve Hashem with their heart and soul, but everyone with their own flavor. Now, is there a particular, as you say, flavor, a particular quality that tends to underlie the Babov community specifically? To be honest, I, I can't think of anything specific. There's obviously a certain outerly look, which, uh, which people can get used to. Um, there are certain Sfarim that they like to learn, certain, you know, Jewish books, which they specifically like to learn. There's a lot of, a lot of Torah learning, a lot of chesed, uh, just a very nice community in general. Now, on the one hand, you did grow up in sort of a cloistered community because you went to this Bob of Cheder, which is for those who aren't familiar with that term, it's a very intensive religious school for young children. Uh, at the same time, you were living in Toronto, not in Borough Park, not in one of these centers of you know, Hasidic life where you would never meet someone outside of, of that group. So did that reality give you kind of a broader view and, a, and a sort of a wider exposure to different kinds of Jews or even, you know, to non-Jews as well? Or because you were really kind of in this sub-community within the bigger community, was it more of just a very insular kind of upbringing? I wouldn't say it was so insular. Definitely the fact that we lived in Toronto has a lot to do with that. When you live in Brooklyn, or in Muncie or Lakewood or Monroe, you can have um, many times you can be in a situation where you won't meet anybody from the outside uh, your entire life until you become an adult. And even after you become an adult, that certainly was not my life. Um, obviously, we're living in Toronto, so it's, there were much less of our kind of people. We also lived in, in an apartment building with uh, many non-religious Jews and many non-Jews. And um, yeah, that, I, I wouldn't say I was super insulated uh, during my childhood. Big uh, Maple Leafs fan? I couldn't care less. <laughs> Still today? Still today. I don't, I don't care about sports. I mean, I think it's healthy for people to play sports, but I'm not a fan of any, any teams. Right and now. you never laced up the skates, huh? Um, it's funny. I once went to New York for a weekend and my aunt took us ice skating. Other than that, I've uh, never Rockefeller been. Center, something like that. <laughs> no, it was somewhere in Brooklyn. And, and <laughs> that was it. You went to, from Toronto to New York to go ice skating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually a pretty harrowing uh, sport to try if you, if you don't know what you're doing. You fall down and bump your your tush a few times, and you know it's. it's <laughs> 
Yeah, but the focus. main thing to know that in life is when you fall down, you have to get back up. I obviously did fall a couple of times and it was, I still had a great time. There you go. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, growing up, would you say that you were um, a very curious person? Were you very kind of, you know, ADHD all over the place, you know, constantly checking things out, you know, sneaking off of school to, to find interesting scenes as we'll get to kind of your current uh, vocation or avocation. But uh, what was, what were you like as a little kid? So I was a pretty good kid uh, for the most part. Um, I don't know about ADHD. I still have never got an official diagnosis, but I'm sure I have it. it you right now, right here on the podcast. It's yours. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I had it. Um, I got involved in some trouble a little bit later at school. It wasn't so much sneaking out. It was more about avoiding going to school altogether. But even, even when I was in school, uh, I had definitely had some fun there. I was the guy who would arrange a lot of the trouble in my older years of school. I specifically one, remember one incident where we were we had like you weren't allowed to use the school telephone without permission. So I'd have someone go to the secretary and distract her while we had uh, other people using the phone and call a pizza delivery service to come and deliver food to uh, building an office building next door. And then we had to distract the rabbis who were watching us during recess. So someone could go pick up the pizza. I think we got caught once. We somehow we still managed to eat the pizza, even though we got caught. I need to look into the history books and figure out exactly what happened there, but it was, <laughs> It was a good time. The kosher pizza or not? It sounds like it was kosher pizza. Uh, it was very, yeah, it was totally uh, kosher. Because the other pranks, when I was growing up, you'd order a non-kosher pizza and get it like some, you know, rabbi or a uh, one of the teachers, something like that. Like, why well, hey, Domino's, you know? <laughs> no, we, we weren't trying to cause that kind of trouble. It was more sort of like kind of to enjoy our lives. We didn't want to cause trouble for anyone else. Uh, beautiful. You're much, much better than me. <laughs> uh, that's great. So did you have uh, any exposure to travel when you were young? Did your family travel at all or? Besides going to New York to go ice skating, I understand. But any exotic travel or that's something that came much later? So we'd go to New York uh, two or three times a year to visit family, which those were like the highlights of my year. And we live about an hour and a half away from Niagara Falls. That's something we saw often. Other than that, I had uh, zero travel experience. So I guess that's something that, that, that came later, I, I imagine. That sounds like the first time you had major travel was going to Israel at, at age 18. Is that... Is that accurate? Uh, that is not accurate. Uh, I'll tell you, number one, this, this desire to go traveling was burning inside of me since uh, as long as I can remember, pretty much. And when I was almost 18, a couple of months before I went to Israel, I went to Uman uh, for Rosh Hashanah for the first time. That was ah, okay. So maybe you can explain to our uh, listeners, um, some, some are familiar, but others may not be. What does that mean, Uman for Rosh Hashanah? What exactly is that all about? So uh, one of the largest Hasidic sects is called Breslov. It was uh, founded by... Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who was a great-grandchild of the founder of Hasidus, was the Baal Shem Tov. And he uh, lived in a town in Ukraine called Breslov, which the sect is named after that town. Um, it's a very interesting Hasidic sect, very deep uh, teachings. There's, there's a, there are a couple of stories that Rabbi Nachman wrote. They're, they're not uh, true stories, but they, they have a lot of truth in them, meaning they're stories that if you, if you learn through them, they can change your whole perspective on life. Some of these stories can take like six months to learn. It's a very deep stuff. But anyway, so I became a little bit connected with Breslov, started learning the books uh, when I was 17. And then I wanted to go to Uman. I wanted to go to Uman before. That's the truth. The whole, the whole idea of me coming into Breslov was because it's just I really wanted to go to Uman. I heard it was an awesome party. And Uman is the burial place of this. Yeah, Uman is rabbi. the burial place of Rabbi Nachman. And he wanted his Hasidim to come to him for Rosh Hashanah even after his passing which is something they do till today. So I, I just heard that Uman was awesome and you have to go. So I wanted to go. 
And then there was somebody, uh, an influence in my life, I think he was one of my rabbis, said, well, if you're going to Uman, you may as well learn about what it's all about, what Rabbi Nachman is and everything. So I started studying his books uh, that way. Is that uncommon for someone from a Bubov community to be studying Breslov? I know they both start with B, but they're different sects. So it's, it's actually quite uncommon. In general, in the Hasidic world, uh, Breslov is one of those sects that people might not go near with a 10-foot pole. Uh, it's more about, I'd say, more about ignorance than anything else or fear. Um, it's, 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 the teachings of Breslov are very powerful. And if you, sometimes if you don't have the right guide uh, teaching them to you, you can end up in, a, in an interesting place. So it's important uh, when learning really deep stuff to make sure that you understand fully what the, the writer or the teacher is trying to convey through the books. Um, but th- that is one of the reasons why Breslov is a little bit further out. Some people are iffy about it, but thank God, I, I hope and feel like I fell into the right place in Breslov. So uh, I'm safe there. Did you have good teachers who kind of directed you early on? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So you went to the Uman and, and uh, how, was the, uh, how was the experience? Uh, really life-changing. You, you come to a place where there are tens of thousands of other people. They're all also there temporarily. Uh, just for a couple of days, Rosh Hashanah was unreal. I mean, the it's something like like if you've never experienced it, you'll never you'll never know. The joy is palpable. You can there's excitement in the air. You know, around the world, people take Rosh Hashanah as a very serious day, and it is a very serious day. But sometimes we tend to forget that it's also a holiday, and we're supposed to be happy. And in Uman, that is not forgotten. And uh, definitely, I, once I went one year, I told myself, you know, I have to do this every single year. You're hooked. Yeah. Did um, so you going back to this idea of a travel bug, where do you think that came from? Like, why do you think that was just inborn or, or did something stimulate that? Did you, you know, come across books or magazines? You're like, Oh, I, I got to go do that. Like, what about you kind of generated that enthusiasm for travel? It's a very good question. And I honestly don't know the answer. I'm still trying to figure it out today. Um, there's, there were certain triggers like certain books that I'd read, or there were these kosher films that, that were made in Israel that I used to watch. And one of them took place in India and another one in Russia and another one in Turkey. And I was thinking like, wow, I, I need to see these places. Um, there were also a couple, there was like a teacher I had in fourth grade who was from India, uh, a firm guy, and he had fascinating stories from his childhood. And, um, there were some other inspirations. It's just there was a lot of curiosity and, and something I told myself that when I grow up and get to do my own thing, I'm definitely going to start traveling. Amazing. So was that kind of a vision of a career or was it much more, Hey, you know, I'm going to get a job, be like a regular guy and then save up my money and uh, you know, jet off to different places. So there was no vision of exactly how it was going to work out. All I knew was that this was going to happen by hook or by crook. So what was the first trip that you took besides Uman? So when I was 18, my parents sent me to learn in Israel and I could have taken a direct flight, but I chose to take a stopover on the way to Israel. I had a one day in Rome and then the way back happened overnight in Paris. Then I went to Russia through a stopover. Then I, while I was in Israel during the summer, I snuck out and went to Egypt for a couple of days, which was also life-changing because I thought I was doing the most dangerous thing in the world. And I got to Egypt, everyone was like chill and I was walking around with my pace out. And, and it was just like, you start to realize that the world's not actually as bad as they make it sound. Um, the first year that I started traveling, 
I made it in the first 10 or 11 months, I had made it already to 10 countries. And that was my goal for the year. And I thank God I got there. 10 countries in the first year. Yeah. Do you remember all 10? Sure. So, I mean, I'm going to count United States and Canada. Okay, fine. We'll give you, we'll give you partial credit for those. <laughs> okay. Then we, then we have Ukraine, Netherlands, Israel, uh, Italy, France, Russia, Egypt, and Turkey. Now, we're, most of the time were these like quick trips, like a day? It sounds like these little stopovers. So, well, Ukraine, I was there for, for a couple days, uh, for, like, for like 10 or 12 days. I went for a long time prior to Rosh Hashanah. Then, obviously, a couple of months in Israel. Um, been to the United States and Canada a couple of times during that year. I was in Poland for a few days. Um, I was in Turkey twice for a day. I was in Egypt for two days. I was in Russia for one day. Um, in, in the early years of my travel, that was how I did it. It was just like, I didn't have money to, to just go traveling, but if there was a way to sort of work it into the trip, then that's what I was going to do. Would you say that your interest in the travels, at least early on, was more generalized? Like, I just want to see different cool places around the world, just learn about the world? Or is it more like, I want to check out the Jewish community in these places or the Jewish history, and things like that? I just wanted to see everything. So I wanted to go to the place, see the tourist attractions, see the Jewish community, eat in the kosher restaurants, buy the souvenirs, whatever, whatever there was to see, I wanted to see it. And you were funding these on your own or your parents were uh, helping you out? So my parents helped me out with, with my travel to and from Israel. Um, that I got a lot of stopovers done that way. And everything else was pretty much funded on my own, either by doing some, some business. Like I remember I was in Yeshiva in Lakewood. I was like buying cigars I was aged, I was like 16 years old. I was buying cigars at, for $1.25 and flipping them for four or five dollars to other boys in Yeshiva. And that like that helped fund some stuff. I, I don't know if we want to I don't know if we want to publish that on the uh, on the podcast. <laughs> I don't care. And then I had a, a like this huge what are the, I don't know what they're called, these these water jugs that you know that you put on the machine, you have to turn them upside down. Like a bong? And, no, like a, this huge jug of water. Oh, um, you mean they, like for like a drinking, like the drinking uh fountain things. Yeah, so I, I, I made this policy for myself that whenever I spend money, I'm just going to take whatever change I get, any coins go in there. And I kept putting money in there for like half a year until I had a quite a significant amount saved up and I could barely hold the thing. Like you need like a couple people to hold it. And then one day I dumped it all out and took it to the bank. Yeah, so you go to the travel agent, you're like, I'd like a, a trip to a Saudi Arabia here. And you'd spend like 80,000 pennies. <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how we did it, you know? I love that image. It's like a little kid, you know, walking to the candy store, you know, open up a piggy bank and give you something to eat. That's crazy. You did the 10 countries in your first year. And at the same time, I guess you were probably developing a sense of a, of a future and a career and things like, and as you mentioned, you got married fairly young. What, what were you thinking about like in general for your future? So no, I actually was not imagining any career in travel. It's just something I knew that I wanted to do and something that's important to me. And so what were you planning I'm... in general? Um, I thought I was going to learn a Kylo. You just study Torah full time. That's what I thought. It, it was a mistake. Not that it's a mistake to learn Torah. It's just I, I realized that for me personally, uh, the reality of me sitting in one place for, for longer than three minutes was just not. Uh, well, I told you, we already gave you the ADHD designation today. So Right. So, so after a couple months of trying that, I just realized it wasn't going to happen. I did all sorts of odd jobs. Don't ask. I, I worked in a bakery in Israel for like one day until they realized that I'm an American citizen and they can't hire me without a visa. So I got fired. And then I, I, I did so many interesting things. I worked in Amazon businesses. 
I help people clean their homes. Don't ask. I did anything I could to, to make a buck. And eventually I ended up in, uh, in Ami magazine. Amazing. So you got married at 21. And was that through a, a traditional Hasidic approach of barely meeting uh, someone the, the, that's called a Basho nowadays, where you, you sit in uh, kind of like in the living room and just meet once or twice? Or was it a more modern dating system, more prevalent in kind of the non-Hasidic circles? So I wouldn't say it was the traditional Hasidic approach because uh, there was no show, although I would have loved to have one because it would have been really awkward and I, I love awkward moments. <laughs> but uh, we ended up like more or less just dating a bunch of times, me and my wife, and eventually we came to the realization that this was probably the, the right thing. So we got engaged. Now, is your wife from a similar background? And, uh, and did she know about your travel bug before she... Uh... <laughs> Jumped Pretty in. much always always spoke about during our dates. So she also loves to travel. Yeah, and she she's been to an impressive list of countries as well. Uh, Without you, or like on her own, she had been. Or yeah, fascinating. Now, do you think that's what people what brought you together initially? Is that, that why people introduced you? I I actually think it was a factor. Yes. And, but is she is she also from a similar background, or she's from a different community? Because I'll tell you that a lot of people watching the video series. Asked me, he said, "Do you think his wife is is Lubavitch from Lubavitch background?" That was a commonly asked question. Sure. So my wife is from a similar background in the sense that she grew up in a home of Hasidim of Tanz Klosenberg, which is actually like the sister Hasidus to Bavav. But her, my wife's mother's side, there is some Lubavitch uh, background. Yeah. So just so you know, that was that was the conjecture going around. I don't know if you heard that from anyone after the video. No, I did hear it because she has, she has a Lubavitch sounding name. The name and the way the dress, comportment, and things like that. And she was very, you know, had a certain uh, eloquent way of speaking with the, with the uh, cameraman and things like that. That's her credit. Um, I think she developed herself very nicely into a person who's uh, comfortable in the world. And she works in real estate now or? No. I don't know where I got that off. Again, I remember she was mentioning something about her. Uh, or maybe she was saying you work in business and you're traveling. Unless that was the, one of the friends. There was, someone, there was someone at the table. My wife is a very, very talented artist. She makes amazing paintings, which are, uh, we're working on getting them sold right now. And she's an amazing uh, wife and mother. Any, anywhere people can see her artwork? They can go to Instagram.com slash art by Mushki. And um, she has an impressive uh, collection of paintings there. Not everything that she's painted is there, but uh, she's, she's going to keep uploading. Art by Mushka. Okay. She looks like a great cook. That much I can tell you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, she is. That much I, mean, I can definitely tell you. Yeah, take one look at me and you know. <laughs> I can only see your face, so you're in safe territory. But my mouth was watering watching that video series. So, okay, so you got eventually hired by Ami Magazine. Now, just how did people, do, how do they discover you? Did they say, okay, we want to bring you on board and just go wherever you want and just write us articles about it? Like, what was the arrangement and tell people what even Ami Magazine is? Okay, so uh, Ami Magazine is uh, the, the largest Orthodox Jewish English language weekly print magazine in the world. It is sold all over the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, Israel. So it, it really gets around hundreds of thousands of weekly readers. And when I joined, it had nothing to do with travel whatsoever. I had done some work for a different publication, and then I uh, was looking to to move over to, uh, to something new. Um, I happened to meet Jake Turks, who is uh, Ami Magazine. The White House correspondent. White House correspondent, the first ever Hasidic Jewish White House correspondent. Fun fact is he crashed on my, uh, 
one of my students who live here, I live in Silver Spring, Maryland. I have some, some alumni of mine, students of mine who uh, had an apartment and uh, used to, when he first started out, he used to crash on their couch. <laughs> he was staying over in DC. So cool. So uh, I actually bumped into him at a simcha and I told him that I wanted to get into uh, writing and he got me my first job in a different publication and then he got me into Ami. So it's all his credit and I certainly, travel had nothing to do with it. I mean, maybe in the back of my head, I hoped that one day I'd be sent on trips and expeditions, but originally I was just uh, writing whatever they asked me to, you know, go interview this old lady here. So then when and how did the, the travel piece enter the picture? So one night I got a text at like two or three in the morning from uh, my boss and the text said, do you want to go to Mexico? And I was thinking, what funny wording? Of course I want to go to Mexico. <laughs> so I said yes. And basically within a couple of days, I was on a plane to Mexico City. There was a community of converts, Mexican native people who decided that they want to become Hasidic Jews. And they had this whole little shtetl going on in a town called Aquablanca near Mexico City. So I flew down there to meet them and the rabbi who helped convert them and was teaching them and leading them. And um, I believe it was after that that the magazine started getting stories, uh, started getting letters from people asking for, for this to continue. Did the magazine know that you were interested in travel? Was that, you think, why they reached out to you or was it kind of luck of the draw? So I, I think they knew I was interested because I'd written a couple, a couple travel pieces from things that I'd done on my own. Like I, I wrote a story about my trip to uh, the, the grave, the cave of Aaron Akoyan in, in Petra, Jordan. And uh, that was something I did on my own personally. And, and that went into the magazine. Additionally, I took my wife to Thailand and I wrote a fun article about that. So I guess they knew that I was like into travel, but it was more about like, oh, we need something to put into our Shavuos magazine that's really late. And the only crazy person who's going to pick themselves up and go is Shlomi. So that's why they called me. All right. So what I want to ask you to do now is you are a traveler. So if you could take all of our listeners on a journey and just walk us through some of the most interesting adventures. I know you've been to some wild places, some potentially dangerous places from a Jewish perspective, and just some really interesting places. Give us a tour of some of the great trips you've been on and some, some vignettes from each one. Okay. So what I, I'm going to run through some countries and you just tell me where to like, what you want to hear from which country. I'll let you okay. know. So, uh, I've been to Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Qatar, Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, Azerbaijan, China, India, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, did you hang out with Borat or that? That's not? No, no, he wasn't available uh, <laughs> when I came. Slimy. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's, let's, let's rewind a little bit over here and let, let's start digging into the Muslim countries because that I think is really interesting. And again, surprising for someone of your look and uh, your profile. So take us through some of those countries. How did that come about? And uh, what were your experiences there? So another thing that I'd like to explain to you is that I don't always have a logical explanation for why I do things. Just a <laughs> lot of times it just feel right. So this may have even been before I was working for Ami. I was, I was just surfing the internet and I came across something that insinuated that there was a Jewish community in Lebanon. I was like, it's weird. I didn't know there were Jews left in Lebanon. Like I, I thought everyone was gone. So I looked further into the matter and I discovered there was this little quiet Facebook page called Lebanese Jews or something. And there were updates from the 
Jewish, I wouldn't say community because there isn't an active community, but there's a shul in Lebanon that was in the middle of being renovated. Um, and there was obviously somebody running this page. And, and so I, I sort of, I kept that in the back of my mind. Then I forgot about it. And then one day I figured, I just want to look into that again, see where the Jews of Lebanon are holding and the page had disappeared from Facebook. So I don't know what happened, but that made me very curious to look further into the matter. And I did a lot of digging and I ended up getting in touch with uh, some people, Jewish people who still live in Lebanon. They keep a very low profile, but they are active in doing what they do. And I ended up pitching the, the idea to Ami Magazine. They loved it. And they sent me on the trip. It was very complicated from a logistical perspective to, to work out. I had to get a new passport, clean of Israeli stamps, I mean, I couldn't tell anybody it was going and I couldn't even book a ticket on the Lebanese airline that flies to Lebanon because Israeli IP addresses are blocked from using their website. So I had to have a friend book the ticket for me from Europe. So I went from Israel, had a stop in Turkey. I got to the airport. I was terrified because they pretty much ask a lot of people or everybody if they've been to Israel. And I didn't want to lie, but I also didn't want to say that I had been there. So I'm waiting in line at passport control and there's a lot of people there and it's one of my first experiences in a, in a Middle Eastern country and I'm hearing a lot of Arabic and for someone who grew up in the Hasidic community that's quite frightening to be to be honest there's nothing I'm not trying to offend anybody it's just the honest truth of, of how somebody's upbringing and mindset can uh, play with their head in that kind of situation so I got to passport control and the agent there was very friendly and he looked at my passport and he said are you an American? I said, yes. And he said, is this your first time in Lebanon? And I said, yes. And then he looked into my passport. He looked at my photo and he stopped and he was staring at me. And then he said, give me a second. And he called over two other soldiers. They started talking to each other in Arabic. And I was freaking out because I knew that something must be off. I might be in trouble. First, look at my name. My name is Shlomi Yosef Zions. I mean, the first four letters of my last name could not be helpful in any situation anywhere in the Middle East. So I was starting to like think, oh, oh I've been busted. What's going to happen? Are they going to detain me? Are they just going to put me back on the plane? And the guy, the, the agent at the, at the counter said to me, look at the soldier in the eye. And I stare the guy in the eye and he smiles and says something and walks off. So I asked the agent, what's going on here? He said, oh, well, I just thought you looked like one of our friends. And I called my friends over to see if they thought the same thing. I guess there's a lot of Shlomo Yosef Zions around uh, Lebanon. You know? <laughs> I th and there was more of the look. Right, right. No, the, the doppelganger, yeah. You know, it's like you can be so scared of something and really this guy just thinks he knows who you are or knows someone who looks like you and he's trying to have a good time. When you're doing this, are you wearing a yarmulke or you, you have your pace out or you wear a baseball cap and tucked in and... No, I was wearing like a fedora and my my pace were nowhere to be seen. My tits were tucked in. I, I took, I literally like... I had an article of clothing that had a tag on it from, from an Israeli manufacturer and I ripped off the tag on the inside of the clothing. I made sure there were no Hebrew letters anywhere. The only thing I had was my talisman tefillin, which uh, there was nothing to do about that. That came in, but no one, no one noticed them. So you do conceal your identity when you're in a place like that? Um, I don't like to say conceal. It sounds like I'm doing something wrong. I just don't advertise it. Right. Tell me about Saudi Arabia. Oh, that's one of my favorites. So... Saudi Arabia traditionally is a country that has been closed to the entire world for uh, since its founding. 
And I remember I had a, somebody else in my life who, uh, who, who influenced me in travel was my father had a worker who had spent like a couple months or a year in India. And uh, he'd also been in other places in the world. And he told me that he, he went to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And then he, he had mentioned something about wanting to go to Saudi Arabia, but he realized that there's no way to get in. And even if he, he could possibly get a visa, Jews weren't allowed in. And I thought to myself, that's crazy. Like there's this country in the world that I'm never, ever going to be able to go to. I don't know why, but that bothered me as a kid. So anyway, fast forward a couple of years, I find out that Saudi Arabia has a new crown prince who wants to modernize the country. And they decided to do a pilot program. They wanted to see how it would work out for tourists to come to the country. So they started this program where anybody could apply for a visa. There was a 30-day opening from the beginning of December until the end of December 2018, I believe. And uh, 1,000 people applied for visas. I was one of those 1,000 people. I got, I got approved. And a couple of days later, I was in Riyadh. And when I got to the airport... You, as soon as you get there, you have to put everything you own through a baggage scanner. And all my bags went through. Everything was fine. There was just one little bag at the end that got stopped. And that was my Talis and Tefillin. So I'm standing in the airport in Riyadh, surrounded by a lot of colorful people. Or well, not so. A lot of people wearing black. And a lot of people in robes and, and kafias And really culturally and religiously, probably the farthest thing from what I am. And I'm standing there and this woman who's, who's manning the baggage scanner is completely, completely covered. All you can see is her, are her eyes. And she says to me, uh, this bag, sir, please open it. So I open my bag and out comes my tefillin. And she takes them out and she's inspecting them. And she says, what are these? And I said, oh, um, I'm Jewish. And uh, these, I need these to pray. So she said, Okay, so what are they? So I explained to her so that, uh, you, you know, you take them out of the cases, you put one on your arm and one on your head. And she says, and then what do you do? I said, then I pray. So she said, okay, very interesting. Um, do you have any other special technology I should know about? And I said, no, this is not special technology. This is just the leather, you know, leather straps and little boxes with scrolls inside. She called her manager and her manager didn't know what to do with me either. So he called his manager and this last guy was like seven feet tall, bald guy wearing a business suit, no tie, would not want to meet him in a dark alley. And he takes one look at my film and says, oh, this, yeah, this, this is fine. No problem. Welcome. So they let me into the country. And um, it was a life-changing experience. Tell me a story or two. Why, yeah, what was, what was so powerful about it? So it's just that when you think of Saudi Arabia, you think of a lot of things. I don't know specifically what, what you might think of, but to me, it's just a scary place. I think Sharia law and, and, and no freedom and, and whatever else the, the media tells you. And then you come there and it's just like a lot of happy people going about life, sitting in Starbucks and sitting at the boardwalk and going shopping and nice cars and people were really friendly. Did you get any strange glances or people couldn't really detect that you were Jewish? So I was, not, uh, I was not dressed openly as a Jew. Uh, that's something I'd like to do hopefully in the future. But at the moment, uh, it has not or maybe cannot be done. You also have, I know, you know, recently Dubai has opened up to the world, UAE. Dubai has always been open. So you went before that it was open, right? Before, before it was normalized, I should say. Relations. Well, it was normalized. It's just that, that we have uh, a stigma that we created for ourselves 
that any place that's a Muslim country that we can't visit, and it's just not true. Um, it opened up for Israelis. Obviously, the Abraham Accords opened up a whole new world of, of dialogue and diplomacy and tourism and business. But as, as anybody who was not an Israeli, you could have visited Dubai uh, for many years. And you went, I guess, well before all this, it was in the news. So my first time there was um, almost exactly a year before the Abraham Accords. It was not so long ago, but during that year, I went back a couple times. And Dubai is just one of my favorite cities in the world. Such great people, um, such an amazing, an amazing, amazing country. Do people always reach out to you for, for consulting and things like that if they want to go to different countries and have different traveling? Do you, you got to dispense tips? And uh... So in, in the Middle East, that does happen a lot. I also started running like private tours to, to Dubai. So people will actually hire me to take them to Dubai. I've done that. I do itinerary planning for people. It's, you know, anybody can go to Dubai and have a good time. But what I, what I specialize in is, is taking people to the Dubai they won't see elsewhere. The stuff that where the you know where the tour guides won't take you, I I have a lot of connections there and able to get people meetings with some important people and it, it's Dubai is a good trip. What are some of your other favorite countries? And then I gotta start moving in some other directions because there's so much to talk about. We could do this forever, but a couple other favorites. So I actually really like Ukraine. I've been there so many times, dozens of times, and uh, it's always always a good time. There's a lot of Jewish history, a lot of Kibbutz Tzadikim, a lot of anti-Semitism. There's also a lot of nice people. And um, that's always been a good trip. I love Thailand as well. Been there a bunch of times and uh, very friendly people. So many interesting things to do. It's, it's fascinating when you, when you land in a place and everything is a, in a different language. The, word, the words you're hearing on the street, the signage. There's some great Chabad houses there. So probably some of the best in the world. Azerbaijan is a country I really want to go back to. I wasn't there for long enough. I hope to go back very soon and discover it. They have... Aside from beautiful cities, the nature there is, is insane. Speaking of Chabad, is that kind of your lifeline when you travel? Is that how you get kosher food? Some of these places don't even have a Chabad, amazingly, like Saudi Arabia, right? But um, right. The, in the other places, what are your uh, experiences Jewishly? So as a general rule, I bring my own food wherever. If I'm going to a place where there is no kosher food, I'll bring my own. But Chabad has come to the rescue so many times with so many different things. I've spent many, many Shabbat at different Chabad houses all over the world. And I appreciate them probably more than anyone because of uh, the work that I do. Maybe share one or two of the most inspiring or amazing Chabad shluchim that you've met in some far-flung place. I think my two favorite would have to be Rabbi Nechemi Wilhelm of Bangkok, Thailand, who has a Chabad house for the backpackers. You should totally have him on your show, by the way. I'd love to. Such a fascinating guy. He has... uh, I'm not sure if it's 100 or 200,000 Israelis coming through every single year. And almost all of them end up in Chabad of Bangkok at some point. He has Shabbos meals every single week with anywhere from 300 to 900 people. They do the meals in two shifts. And then when the meals are done, he makes a smaller Shabbos meal in his personal apartment where you can also have 100 people. And everybody is required to either get up and speak or tell a story or sing a song or take upon themselves a a commitment to be a better person. And you just sit at this Shabbos meal, which can go till four or five in the morning. It must be a long meal with a hundred people each uh, doing a personal thing. It really is. But like, it's some of the best entertainment. You're going to have such good laughs and inspiring stories and great food. And uh, it's a man who really inspires me, him and his rabbits. And additionally, there's a, there's a really nice Chabad Shlech in Mumbai, India, who took over for Rabbi and Rabbi Gabriel Holzberg. 
Rabbi Yisrael Kozlovsky is his name, very special man. And I spent a memorable uh, few days over there as well. They don't have the same uh, amount of people coming through like Thailand, but he is a very special person. And it's a specifically a very difficult uh, Chabad house to run because of the, the country they're in and the surroundings. And it's hard to get access to a lot of kosher food, and whatever, but everything with a smile. Right, so what's this been like in Corona for you the last year? The whole world shut down and travel has been basically non-existent. Right. So when Corona started, first of all, I was one of the only people who was taking this seriously from January of last year. I was already, I saw what was coming. You know, for most people, when you hear that uh, there's uh, something happening in China, you think, okay, whatever, it's in China. I've been to China. I know it's only a 16-hour flight from JFK. And once you have that kind of experience, you know that anything that can happen there can happen here. So I was taking it very seriously. I was uh, in Israel at the time. Uh, my last trip before the pandemic ended on like January 17th, I believe. For a couple of weeks, I was sort of doing my research, trying to figure out if, if it's actually going to come to Israel. Then it came to Israel, but there was only one or two cases. And then I started smelling that there was going to be this huge outbreak. I had one friend who I was in touch with who's also traveled a lot. And we both decided that we were going to go panic buying everything we needed before it was cool. So like three weeks before <laughs> everybody else was punching each other out in the, in the supermarkets for toilet paper. I already had a year's supply in my house and we went for the water and the rice and the beans and pasta and tomato sauce. And we filled up our fridge and freezers with meat. So when, when the panic came, we were, we were calm, but it was, uh, it was actually like induced a little panic in me to see everyone else panicking. Obviously travel was something that went out the window and from January 17th of 2020 until September 1st, 2020, I, was in Israel the entire time. The first few months were kind of nice. It's like, okay, we're spending more time with family. We're having a good time. We're getting work done. And then it started to feel unhealthy. And I'm not criticizing uh, the Israeli government's response to the pandemic, but there were times where you literally were not allowed to leave your front door. Nobody in America has experienced this uh, probably since World War II, but it was getting kind of stressful. And as as a non-Israeli citizen living in Israel at the time, if I'd leave, I wouldn't be able to come back. And if I'd come back, I'd have to be in quarantine for 14 days. And eventually I just realized that I could not live with this way. It was affecting my, my parnasa, my, my livelihood, as well as my mental health, I guess. So on September 1st, my wife and I and the kids jumped on a plane to the United States. And we have seen in the United States, things are not as uh, strict as they are in Israel, which, you know, some people would say it's a blessing. Others would say it's a curse. I believe that everyone should have the right to do things the way they see fit. So if, if you're somebody who's unhealthy or somebody who's worried about the pandemic, then you should definitely stay home, social distance as much as possible, whatever. After a month in the United States, I picked up coronavirus. Not even, it was like after two or three weeks, I, I got it. And once I got it, I was not afraid anymore. I was in bed for a while, but got out, Baruch Hashem, uh, back to normal. And I've done quite a bit of traveling the past few months. Mostly domestic or you've been able to get to other countries? So I went to Dubai um, for a week. To We did something for Ami Magazine for Sukkot, which was very interesting. And then I went to Mexico. And that was me personally. Like my wife was, was uh, staying with family with the kids. Then we got COVID. And, and once COVID was done, we went on this crazy seven-week road trip. We drove from New York to LA and back with a four-year-old girl and a one-year-old baby. 
we drove like 10,000 miles through 25 or 26 states. It was insane. Like we were all feeling, we all had to get out. And, and that's, that's what drives you to do insane things. Yeah. That pressure. I, I can really, I'm going to Florida next week and I can relate. <laughs> so oh, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta get, I'm not I'm vaccinated now also, which is exciting. So I want to kind of wrap up with the travel stuff, but first kind of interject with the recent documentary and we'll kind of go from there. So this documentary with the uh, vlogger, Peter Santinelli, he was kind of like a, I don't know, it was like a lifestyle vlogger. I don't know how you'd exactly describe him, but travel vlogger goes to exotic places or into unusual communities. He went to the Amish recently, things like that. You did this, I think a three-part, right? Documentary with him or whatever you call it, three-part vlog. And uh, got a huge amount of press, huge amount of play and very much acclaimed. I think people were so, in the Jewish community, at least, at least in the religious Jewish community, people were so pleased to see a uh, more balanced, more charitable perspective on the Jewish community, on the religious and Hasidic Jewish communities than some of these kind of, you know, tell-all memoirs and, and, you know, not to discount them and not to say that they have no place or, or that they are, you know, not based on certain people's perspectives. But I think it was a breath of fresh air to see media that was uh, so positive and kind of refreshing in that way. How did that materialize and, and what was the experience like? So uh, first of all, it was a 13 part series. 13 part series. I, I got parts to go. Oh my gosh. I don't know how I missed Yeah, you have, you have 10, you have 10 episodes oh to watch. Oh my gosh. All right. So basically what happened was Peter Santanello is a, I would say he's a travel vlogger, been traveling around the world for, for quite some time. I've been following him for a while and I came across an Instagram story in which he posted that he's coming to New York City and he's looking, you know, he's looking for story ideas in New York City. And I thought, oh, that would be cool. So I sent him a direct message on Instagram and I said, hey, why don't you come check out the Hasidic uh, Jewish communities in Brooklyn? And within an hour or two, he responded and he said, I'd love to do that. So we, we started talking. We set a date for, uh, I believe it was October 5th or 6th. He came to Borough Park for one day. I took him to Borough Park, Williamsburg and Crown Heights. I explained to him about the different Hasidic communities that live there and the differences and, and Lubavitch and Satmar and whatever. And um, it was supposed to be one short video. But he ended up having such a good time and recording so much content that he made a three-part series out of it. I mean, that's what I saw. Okay. Okay. So the first video in that series got uh, now over 6 million views between Facebook and YouTube. And the other two also did quite well. So after a, a bit, I called Peter. And I said, listen, man, you, you know, your series is really doing well. People are really into it. I think you'd have to be crazy not to come back and film more. He wasn't so into it in the beginning, but I managed to convince him. And he came back for another week, filmed another 10 episodes, and uh, the rest is history. Tell me about the Shabbat experience. Obviously, you know, in the actual video, you gave a lot of disclaimers, you know, we're not supposed to film on Shabbat. The rabbi said we could do it in this way and that way and so forth. But people being able to see a real Shabbat experience, not just hearing about it and, and reading about it, to really see it happening, the singing, the family, the food, the experience, I think is a, it was next level for a lot of people. How did that part come about? So I think it was my idea. I, I was trying to think what could I show Peter that would really impact his audience and show them the, the beauty of our communities. Uh, you know, too often everyone likes to show the, the downsides of, of the communities, which do exist and they deserve their fair share of press. You know, that's some, sometimes that's how positive change is made. But I think there's a severe lack a good coverage of the community and the community definitely has a lot more positive things to offer to the world than they do have negative. And that's something that's often skipped. So Peter 
I don't know why, but he fell in love with the Hasidic community. Well, I do know why, because we're kind of awesome. And he, <laughs> he uh, decided to, to, you know, he just wanted to show the world what we're about. You know, all Peter knew about the Hasidic community was he said he had two interactions. Number one was watching the unorthodox uh, series on Netflix. Number two was getting cut off by a Hasidic guy in the airport. That's what he knew about Hasidic Jews. So thank God he opened his heart and his mind to come and try again. And he was very positively uh, surprised by, by what he found. One of the ideas I wanted to do, I wanted to take him to a Hasidic wedding, which I think would, would have brought him a lot of joy and a lot of, just a lot of happiness to, to his audience. But unfortunately, because of COVID, we couldn't make that happen. But uh, a Shabbos meal, I mean, there are so many people who have heard about Shabbos, or maybe they haven't heard about Shabbos, but who gets to see it? That's something, it was like, it's almost like peering into somebody's window because that's something you're never going to see. And Peter, Peter made it happen. What's been the response to this video? I mean, being, being seen by millions and millions of people has to have generated some kind of response in your own life. Yes. I mean, thousands upon thousands of, of personal messages have been sent to me through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, email. People have called me. I, I was in Miami recently and like non-Jewish people were recognizing me on the street and they wanted to take selfies. Like it, it was insane. I, and I, I was somewhere else in the Middle East, which I can't talk about yet because we haven't released the Ami article, but stay tuned for the Pesach edition of Ami because it's going to be crazy. But I was in, let's just say a, a very dangerous Middle Eastern country. And I was in the airport and some Arab guy walks up to me and he's like, hey, aren't you that guy from Peter's video? So it really, really traveled far. I mean, so many things have happened. We've got messages from people who found out that they were Jewish after, after watching these videos. We got messages from somebody who grew up in a Christian household but happened to be Jewish, and now he's uh, put a mezuzah on his door and he started keeping Shabbos, and he's, he's trying to get a pair of tefillin. We're helping him get a pair of tefillin. Someone sent me an email, somebody who grew up in a, in a from household, who went to a yeshiva and had a rough experience, and now he's in his 60s or 70s. And the title of the email was, is it too late to come home? And wow. I was like, of course not. What are you talking about? And uh, hopefully uh, him and I are going to meet next week and we're going to bring him home. That is unbelievable. Wow. Incredible stories. And uh, it'd be interesting to think about ways that you could continue following up on this. I mean, the power of that messaging and of that reach is beyond what anyone in the Jewish community, I think, has been able to achieve on, on their own. Yes, yeah, so actually there are, there are certain organizations who, who work with the government and with the media to try to help the, the true representation of, of the from and Hasidic communities come out. And these people have told me, like, we've been working with, with huge budgets for, you know, for 20 years. We haven't accomplished what this series accomplished. I'm not going to take credit for it. I think Peter deserves a ton of credit. And I think Hashem uh, really just had Rahmanus had pity on us. And we've gotten such a bad beating in, in COVID times. And we've always, like, just last week with NBC nurses, and we're always getting, getting slammed from all sides. And finally, we got a little bit of, of uh, something positive going on. But, you know, you mentioned that, it, that there should be a way to continue it. I actually am continuing Peter's series. Last Thursday, I announced that I'm starting a new project called Black, White, and Human, often when people look at the from communities, all they see is black and white, but they don't see the humanity. So I started a new YouTube channel. It's called Black, White, and Human. And I'm going to try to share uh, stories and meet people in the community, real people, real stories, hopefully once a week. I'm not sure how frequent it's going to be in the beginning, but this is taking off and God willing, we're going to change the world. That's awesome. However I can help, I would love to. That's, that's incredible. Have you, uh, have you stayed in touch with Peter? 
Yeah, sure. Well, we talk often. I used to talk to him every single day, but now that he's moved on from the Hasidic community and he's filming other things, he's quite busy, but we still do talk often. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So just starting to wrap up a couple of questions back to your general travel. First of all, what is a place that you have not yet visited that you is like on your bucket list? You got to, got to get there. Iran. Iran. Wow. Do you see that as being viable anytime or uh, we got to kind of stop the whole nuclear weapon thing first? So I, I don't know much about the nuclear weapons thing. I understand there are concerns with nuclear weapons and where I'm, I'm not into politics or anything like that. All I can say is that I'm almost certain that one day I will be there. God willing, we're going to have to find the right opportunity, the right time with the right people. But um, I would love to visit. I hear the Iranian and the Persian people are some of the nicest, most hospitable people. There's obviously gigantic Jewish communities there. Largest uh, Jewish communities in the Middle East outside of Israel are in Iran. There are seven kosher restaurants operating daily in Tehran. So definitely a place that I want to visit for historical, cultural, and religious reasons. What is one thing you think that you've learned about the world, having done all this travel? Any overarching themes that have uh, stood out for you? Every single human being was created in the image of God. We're all way more similar than we think. Most of us, almost everybody alive, just wants to live a good life, pay their bills, um, have, you know, be safe, and have a good time with their family, and, and do good. And the more we can see the, the godliness and the humanity in other people, the sooner the world will be a better place. Awesome. And then turning more inwards, what would you say you've learned about yourself? Do you feel in some way that travel is a way of kind of searching for something within yourself? And what have you learned about yourself in this process of traversing the world? One thing I've learned is that almost all of some of the greatest experiences I've, I've had have not been planned. And there's something about just going with Amuna with faith and with your instincts and kind of feeling what's right and what's wrong and who, who you should gravitate towards and who you should stay away from. Um, if people are really in touch with themselves and they can sort of get all the distractions out, there's everybody has a very rich inner life that they can tap into. And travel is, I find, especially solo travel, which I do, is, is a way of tapping into that getting to know yourself in a very healthy way. You know, I, I, I can be in places where I won't talk to a human being for a day or two. No one speaks my language. I'm alone. I was in Saudi Arabia for Shabbos, completely alone in my hotel room from the beginning of Shabbos to the end. It was probably one of the top three Shabbos I ever had in my life. So I mean, where can people read about your travels? Obviously, Ami Magazine is, you know, your columns and on a semi-regular basis, special editions and things like that. But is there anywhere that all of your materials collected like in one place and they want to want to just scroll through and see like all the different adventures you've had and things like that. So my website um, is going to be coming soon, shloymizayas.com or shloy.me, like shloymi. I got that one too. Nice. Spell that. Can you spell that out for us? S-H-L-O-I dot me. M-E. M-E, yeah. Or S-H-L-O-I-M-E, Z-I-O-N-C-E at yahoo.com. And um, additionally, I'm on Instagram at Husidel, C-H-U-S-I-D-E-L, on Twitter, at Husidel, C-H-U-S-I-D-E-L, YouTube at Shlemy Zions, and just Google me, you'll, you'll find interesting stuff. Shlemy Zions, the world traveler, I think, unparalleled to anyone that I've met before, and certainly probably uh, within the uh, Jewish community, I would have to say, uh, you probably take the crown. So, some incredible stories. I could speak with you, Shlemy, for, for 20 hours, going through each country and hearing all the, the amazing stories. Sadly, we don't have 20 hours, but... Uh, 
I encourage people to go watch your material to get all that amazing background. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and God bless you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.